The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, September the 20th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Uh, before we start, a quick last chance reminder that there are only four days to go to the Inside Politics live show, which takes place at a quarter to four next Sunday, the 24th, under the auspices of the first Dublin Podcast Festival. Pat Leahy, Mary Minahan and Fia Kelly will be joining me in the Workman's Club in Dublin as part of an afternoon of podcasts. You can just come along for hours or you can book for the full day. And we do have some tickets to give away. I'm glad to say for the show uh, to the first people who mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com that's politicspodcast at irishtimes.com the first person who mails us in will win a pair of tickets for the entire full day's event and the next three people who mail in will win pairs of tickets for the Inside Politics show itself uh, so that email address again is politicspodcast at irishtimes.com to find out more about the podcast festival or to book more tickets indeed you can go to dublinpodcastfestival.ie now I was joined a little earlier by Fia Kelly and Harry McGee, and we were all in a rather autumnal mood. So Harry, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness and also of Inside Politics email digest because that fantastic service to our, our readers is back so on. You did it this morning. morning. Um, I, I did see Dave McCullough's tweet this morning. He was David McCullough of RTE. Yeah, he was saying it's a sure sign that the summer is over. The Irish Times political digest is back. So we guarantee sadness, uh, melancholia. Yeah. Uh, misery uh, on on a daily basis. Yeah, the digest is back, and the Doyle, of course, is back today. So the digest is out every day that the Doyle is sitting, uh, giving you our extraordinary insight into the world of politics. Uh, and what inner wisdoms are you conveying to us today? Well, my own piece of wisdom, for what it's worth, is that I don't think there's going to be an election for uh, at least another year. Even though Finnegal uh, will have its manifesto ready by November, I think uh, if things stay as they are, I think it suits both big parties. Uh, to uh, continue with the confidence and supply agreement uh, with a a budget next year and then an election happening sometime afterwards, either very late next year or perhaps even uh, early in 2000. And you think they're both on the same page in that regard? I think they are. I was listening to Brian Hayes at our uh, Irish Times PwC uh, conference this morning talking about his read on it and he was saying that if there were an election, he said the arithmetic wouldn't really change all that much Uh, So you might get uh, one of the parties stepping out and the other party stepping in, but having to rely on the other big party uh, for a similar type of arrangement or accommodation. So uh, he he said because of that and because it didn't look like there was going to be any big uh, paradigm shift, uh, to use the cliche, um, he thought uh, that uh, there was no election uh, looming on the horizon. I'd I'd agree with that It is an interesting dynamic, isn't it, Fick, that if that's the understanding of both the parties, well, both the parties know that after an election, they're still going to have to work together, even if they flipped sides and one is now in government and the other one's on the opposition benches. There'll be some form of confidence and supply. And that would sort of put manners on them in terms of their dealing with, dealings with each other over the next year, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I would think so. Like, you know, as, as Harry, I agree with Harry, I don't think there'll be an election until this time next year, possibly over a third budget that they would, it would fall on the third budget and they would kind of put their competing visions to the people. But I do think it is the interest of both parties to maintain confidence supply because if you're advocating that as a, as a form of government and both accept that that is the, the likely next form of government, then you cannot go to the people 
without giving it a proper chance and say, oh, this doesn't work, so therefore we're asking you to give us a proper mandate. If they know themselves, which they do, that the likely outcome is there's going to have to be some sort of minority government arrangement, unless one of them makes a great leap forward in the next year and manages to cobble together a majority government, but that is unlikely at this stage. So does that mean it cuts down even on the temptation to either engineer a mini crisis that that you know might might lead to to an election or not get in the way of such a crisis. So for example, there's been a bit of spat going on this week about uh, Leo Varadkar's suggestion or and Pascal Donoghue's suggestion that any kind of leeway for taxpayers in the in the upcoming budget would be by way of broadening the tax bans benefiting uh, lower and middle income earners as opposed to the USC cuts which are actually in the confidence mm. and supply agreement and Finfall have bit back on that. Yeah, I think you know Fianna Fáil are correct in their reading saying that the USC cuts are in the confidence supply agreement. The agreement does say that successive budgets should reduce the USC rates um, for low and middle income earners. It's kind of curious to figure out what Fine Gael are at. I think what they're actually at is positioning themselves, sending a message to those people who got up early in the morning that we're, we're for you guys. We might not get our way entirely, but they're preparing the ground for an election a year's time or maybe a year and a half's time. And this idea of this three-year budgetary outlay that Leo Varadkar has said that they will consider when they're unveiling the budget in three weeks' time, I think that will feed into it as well. They say, look, this is this budget. We can't do much, but next year we're going to go for the bans. And that will be their vision for the election. So I think what we're seeing is the kind of divergence ahead of an election mm. beginning, that neither party will probably get what they want entirely out of this budget. There will have to be USC cuts, such as in the deal. If there's no USC cuts, the confidence supply deal falls. That's it. But Varadkar may try and do something in his direction to say to those voters he's targeting, I'm for you. Because it is mostly symbolic, isn't it, Harry? Because the amount of money they have to play with means that any, any of those cuts are going to be pretty minimal in terms of what people yeah, actually see in their wage packets. It, it's quite small in the context of an overall budget. I think we're talking, at the moment, if all things remain equal, uh, in the region of 300 to 350 million euro uh, of wiggle room for the Minister for Finance, uh, Pascal. And that's to cover Dunham. everything. That's to cover everything, including pension increases, including uh, incremental increases in health spending as the population ages. So you can see that it's going to be a headache for him. Now, he may come up uh, with one or two uh, revenue uh, generating um, uh, proposals in the budget that will give him a little bit of uh, room for manoeuvre. But there is there, there is there is definitely a, a gap between uh, what Fine Gael is proposing and what Fianna Fáil want. And it is true that the Confidence and Supply Agreement does commit uh, to uh, reducing, gradually reducing USC. But like a lot of other things in the uh, Confidence and Supply Agreement, uh, besides water, which was very specific, uh, there's a bit of creative ambiguity there. So there aren't any specific... Uh, targets, nor, nor are there any specific timeframes. So Pascal Donoghue could very well said, listen, I am going to deal with USC guys, but I'm not going to deal with it mm. until the budget of next year. And then I'll deal with it. And then there's a second layer that's coming into that as well. During the leadership contest for Fine Gael, uh, Leo Varadkar went on the record very early in saying that he himself is personally opposed uh, to any diminution in USC. He agrees mm. with USC he agrees with the concept. And then there's a third strand that comes in. I don't know if it'll be dealt with in this budget or not. I d- very much doubt it. I think it'll be up for discussion. There might be a consultation paper that will come out of the budget. Uh, it's to do with the merging of USC and pay-related social insurance or PRSI. And, and, and that's kind of where Fine Gael, I think, would like to see things going. Is that, I mean, they've done a complete about turn on their position at the last election, yeah. Fiac, where, where they were they were proposing to get rid of USC. And in fact, there's a... F- broad consensus across quite a number of parties now that USC is not the worst mm. tax in the book in that it's more equitable uh, it you know it, mm. it, it it affects the whole of the population if you cut it 
uh, everybody's going to benefit, including people who are you know, right at the top of the wage scale as well. Yeah, that's right. And what Harry says about the merging of the PSI and the USC, there is a paper already commissioned on that. I think Pascal has already said he wants his department to look at how that could be done. But that is a massive project. The PSI system is so complicated, that cannot be touched in this budget. It's extremely unlikely anyway. It's mm-hmm. going to take a number of years. But the Fine Gael viewpoint to chime what Harry said is that they believe if they merge the two and they reduce this new national insurance fund, that is committing or you know, standing by their promise in the confidence supply to reduce USC. So they say that that is sticking to the agreement. So they see that there's many ways to adhere to the commitments they gave Fianna Fáil. But in saying that, I think, actually speaking to people in Fianna Fáil, when Pascal Dunhu announced earlier this summer that he would have a paper to look at this, they said, look, that's not a bad idea. We would actually sit down and talk to them if they wanted to do that. But I think their backs are up now because of what we've seen in the last week or two with the very clear flagging by Fine Gael that they want to focus but on the But I think put them on the back foot a bit then because Fianna Fáil are just falling back on the confidence supply agreement. I heard Micheál Martin on the radio the other day. He wasn't particularly impressive in conveying why cutting USC was the most important thing apart from well, the fact it plays that into it their idea as well that it would benefit more people and would benefit more people on the lower and middle income uh, scale. So the facts if don't necessarily support that but anyway. Well if you look at the piece of the paper today it says it would focus on there's a, there's a great number of people who would benefit from a point of reduction in the 5% USC rate to 4.4 and there would be the raising of the bans it suits both parties it allows them to say you know Leo Varadkar is for the people who are more well off which is not entirely true you're talking about people who are on mid 30 grand salary but it allows Fianna Fáil to say it it also allows Fianna, Leo Varadkar to adhere to his stated position in the leadership election as I will define us in a certain manner and this is the definition so it probably suits both of them Mm. Harry, you were down the Plymouth Championship yesterday. You were taking selfies with hurling stars, I saw. Yeah, well, they were taking selfies with me. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I had the great privilege of going into uh, and queuing up uh, in uh, the Canning Hurley tent uh, uh, to buy a Hurley to buy a Hurley stick for my uh, daughter, a camogie stick for my daughter, and also to pose with Joe Canning. Do you get it signed? I got it signed and I got a selfie with Joe Canning, which was... Uh, the uh, high point of your day, The I'm high sure. point of the day, yeah. without, without any doubt. Yeah, the Plowing Championship is extraordinary and people think of it as being a rural thing, but I think that there's a... a it's, it's important for city people uh, as well because it gives a great insight uh, into uh, rural Irish life as it is now, the traditional parts of it and the modern aspects of it. And when you go down there for city... Uh, slickers like myself the first thing that, that just blows never your mind away slicker, what? <laughs> never thought he was well slicker. I came from, came from Galway which we considered to be a big metropolis when I was growing up um, when, when you go down there the thing that just blows your mind away is the machinery it's just extraordinary these huge uh, machines that look like they come out of Mad Max except they're gleaming and they're new uh, that do the most extraordinary array of tasks uh, in agriculture and amongst the mo- world leaders is a company from uh, Mayo, just outside Ballinrobe, called McHale's, mm. who do extraordinary uh, agricultural uh, machinery. But you see tractors that are, like, enormous. When you think of a Zetta or a Matthew Ferguson that was going around, when I was growing up, certainly, they weren't all that big. But these are uh, uh, tractors that are as big as uh, uh, as locomotive trains in some instances. And then just the, the 116,000 people there yesterday, which was extraordinary. Uh, thousands of stands. Um, every single country artist in Ireland seems to have decamped there for uh, for the week, and it's a kind of an unashamed celebration. Why don't of farmers like techno? I don't know. I, I remember actually going down to Roscommon years ago uh, to uh, speak to a beef farmer, a young beef farmer who was an independent record producer and used to produce pro- punk records from a farm just outside Tulsk. Mm. 
But the reason I went down is that he was the it exception to the rule. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as the exception proves the rule. They do tend to like country music, especially in border counties in Donegal. Yeah, yeah. It's massive up there. Okay. Ploughing is not as an exotic experience to me as it would be to Harry being a North County Dublin man from the spud-growing prairies of Ireland. So I know exactly yeah. what he's talking it's about. It's funny because people who are obviously listening would, wouldn't think of Harry as the metropolitan and you as the, you as the culture, but there you are now. <laughs> you know, accents can, can mislead some of us. So Harry... Where there are so many people, of course, there will also be politicians. Yeah, it's become a very important uh, place for politics. It always has been, but I think all of the political parties realise how uh, important uh, the ploughing championship is. Uh, so all of them have a considerable presence uh, down there. Uh, and what does that involve? A tent with flags a, a and posters? A big marquee, yeah. The mm. Fianna Fáil's uh, Galway Races tent has decamped <laughs> to, uh, to, to near Tullamore. Uh, Fine Gael has a huge tent with images of Leo Varadkar, massive images of Leo Varadkar bedecking it on the outside. So the touch of the Lenny Riefenstahls, I thought about the Fine Gael tent, all those pictures upon pictures of Leo soaring to the sky. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Or uh, perhaps a Middle Eastern dictator as well, or uh, an old dictator from Eastern Europe, but there you go. Um, uh, Leo is big with Fine Gael at the moment, and I think that when uh, the Taoiseach arrives tomorrow, I think he will probably be mobbed. He's not very comfortable uh, pressing the flesh with large crowds, so it'll be in- interesting hmm. uh, to see how he deals with that uh, tomorrow. Uh, Sinn Féin, the Labour Party, the Greens, um, uh, even Luke McFlanagan uh, have uh, all of tents uh, down there and all of their leading personalities from both rural constituencies and urban constituencies are attendants. And there's huge interest. I mean, all of the tents are mobbed. Uh, they all offer free tea and uh, biscuits and sympathy and the chance to press the flesh with their political leaders and this huge interest and they know that it's important. Mm. So it has become a very important moment on the political mm. calendar for all parties just before the Dáil returns. And also there, of course, um, was the President, um, mm. President Higgins, who made an interesting pointer for people who are observing these things about what he might, what his thoughts might be about a second term. Yeah, he did. And Fiuk was writing about that this morning and Fiuk made the very interesting observation that... Um, Mary McAleese did exactly the same. What Michael D. Higgins said yesterday that was significant is that he will make his mind up, but he won't make his mind up until September of next year, which will only be a month before the election. So if any party wants to run a candidate, they'll have to actually decide to run the candidate beforehand, uh, not knowing how Michael D. is going to indicate in terms of him running for a second term uh, or not. The same thing happened with Mary McAleese when she was facing into her second term. But by that stage, all of the political parties right, realised uh, that she was going to go for a second term and they didn't run uh, their own candidates. So if this means that uh, barring catastrophes, Michael D. Higgins is going everybody's to second term. Everybody's reading it that he wants a second term. And, that, no he'll, way. and that he'll get it? I would think so. And he's following the template. Like, you know, the curious thing about the McAleese example is Michael D. is doing it to others well, as was done unto him because he wants to be presidential, the Labour presidential candidate in 2004. And because McAleese had said she didn't make her mind up to the last minute, but it was, Harry, you'll probably know more about this than I. It was, it, it, was, it was known that she wanted a second term and it was just managing to get there. And I was reading back through the cuts around mm. that period last night. And, you know, and the Kenny came out and said that he would back McAleese. Fianna Fáil were obviously backing her. The PDs were backing her. There was a debate within the Labour Party about whether they would put up a candidate against such a hugely popular president and Michael D wanted to run. And only in the days after, I think McAleese de- declared on the mid- midweek, on the Friday evening there was a Labour Party or Thursday Friday evening there was a Labour Party meeting at which the Executive Council decided against running a candidate, which would be Michael D. And Michael D stood outside and said some of his 
colleagues in the parliamentary party lacked the vision and courage or words to that effect to stand the candidate. So he's obviously learned from his own past experiences and the exact same is being applied now. He knows that it's a big task for people to go up against him. And we've always thought because of the, the, the nature of this Iraq, this with the high level of independent TDs and centres, that it would be easy for someone to get into the race if they wanted. And it would be. And then we've all said, well, if an independent gets in, then surely all the parties will bail in. But I went back and again, I looked at 2004, for example, and Enda Kenny at the time made it quite clear that even if another candidate could enter the race, Eamon Ryan was making noise at the time, but he might run, that Fine Gael would support Mary McAleese. And it was somewhat of a different situation because it was only two years since Fine Gael's 2002 election meltdown. But if a Michael Dean manages to engineer a situation where he gets Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil on side, it's very hard to see somebody going against him. I mean, let's be, let's be realistic here. I mean, if you take Fine Gael, for example, I mean, they have a disastrous record in presidential elections and there's really not much sign that it would be any different if they, if they engaged no, in, and in, in they, the next one. They, they know that Michael D is a popular president and if there were a race that he probably would win it. So Fine Gael are going to back him and I've no doubt that Fianna Fáil are going to back him uh, as well. I haven't heard any noise uh, from Fianna Fáil a uh, couple of senators, but yeah, this is, there have been noises off from senators. But when you look at the core leadership of mm. the party, they they look like so they, the, they're not the, going to the oppose. The only possibility then would be that either Sinn Fein or some conglomeration of the independents, people like Senator Jared Crockwell, mm. be making noises about this, would you know, for the sake of principle, might, maybe they might say, for the sake of a democratic contest, might put somebody forward. Sinn Fein look unlikely, and the independents. Well, Mary Lou Macdonald has said it's her personal opinion that there should be an election. Um, now, whether she's in a position of power to <laughs> make her personal opinion party policy mm-hmm. by that time is an open question, but she has said it. But again, they are very fond of Michael D too. Like, it's very hard to see them and standing it, somebody against him. And like, if he is as popular as we all suspect he is, you know, there's also the financial implications. It's all well and good if you're an independent getting 20 signatures and getting into the race, but it'll cost you near a million euro to run a campaign. Sean Gallagher did it the last time in a very paired back uh, approach didn't have posters, didn't have big advertisements. I mean, there are ways of doing these things, as you know, as Donald Trump, among other people, have mm. shown. You can run a personalized campaign without necessarily having to buy all mm. that paid for media, mm. can't you? If you if can, it, yeah. If it's, if if you're clever with social media, and if you're clever in terms of timing, and if you're controversial enough, and mm. if you have, if, if if what you have to say is contrarian enough, the other uh, element that is kind of unique to presidential elections in the Irish context is that they're extraordinarily personalized. Mm. So if you're, if anyone is setting themselves up as a candidate, they have to be. Uh, they have to be ready and prepared to, that they're cruising for a bruising. You'd and they're to going to take a bruising encounter from the media and they're going to be scrutinised in a way that a general election candidate, mm. even a candidate for Taoiseach, uh, will not be scrutinised by the electorate. And if we look back to 2011, I mean, the whipping that some of the candidates took from, from the media mm. and from their opponents was just extraordinary. You would have to be getting ready now, both from a uh, perspective of getting the nomination, getting the funds, and also rooting through your old clauses to make sure there's nothing in there that can come out and embarrass you in the next one. So Michael D. Dunn is quite smart in that way. He knows you have to get ready from a year out. So he's kind of playing a game of chicken with everybody who wants to stand against him. You, know, you think you're hard enough, come on, take me on. another point, not just for the political parties, but for any uh, current member of the Oireachtas, that given the timing you talked about earlier, there is a pretty good chance that there will be an election quite adjacent to when the presidential election would take place if it did, either at, right at the end of next year or already the following year. And so all those people's minds will be focused on their own prospects mm. and getting themselves yeah. re-elected. And also the fact that, that uh, a presidential election campaign is a costly item. Mm. So if you have three uh, elections that are contiguous to each other, you have a general election, a presidential election, and then you have the European elections uh, and, and local elections, indeed, in the summer of 2019. And I think the the coffers of most political parties are stretched at the moment and none of them would be 
uh, looking too happily at the prospect of spending, you know, a million euro plus for a presidential election. The one thing we shouldn't forget, and he, he sometimes gets a pass on this, is he did promise to do only one term. Yeah. And that should not be forgotten, that he did explicitly promise a number of times during the campaign that he would do one term. Now, it was probably a way of getting him over the question of, you know, are you sure you're young enough to see through seven years, let alone 14? But he yeah. did promise to do only one term. And he said yesterday, I, nothing is ruled in and out. That's not true. He said it specifically he wouldn't do yeah, the second well, he said, term. Is that my intention too? I think there was a slight... But I actually, slight, I actually, uh, if you look back... There is, of language there. That there was, yeah. There's a, there's a 6-1 news, which we kind of... Because we were all scratching our heads yesterday going, he definitely said it, didn't he? And we could find... We were trying to find a specific... Mm-hmm. And the 6-1 news at one stage, he said to Brian Dobson, I think the quote is in front of me, said, you know, I, I think he said something like, I will assure you I will only do one term. Yeah, it's, it's a lesson in the art of how you can do a U-turn in politics and not of suffer course, consequences, yeah. isn't it? Uh, um, well, he's, he also says, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, presidents don't um, do politics. They're above politics, you know. And um, I was listening to an extraordinary stump speech from Michael D. Higgins at the Ploughing Championship yesterday. And I was kind of saying to myself, that sounds slightly political to me. It was great speech mm-hmm. and it was a huge plea for rural Ireland and he had done his research. Yeah. But to me, it sounded political, but... They, I think the the uh, those who are in political parties, you know, know it's Michael D. And for some reason, Michael D. gets a free pass on many, many things. They don't want to. There was always a view in the last few years, at times during his presidency, Michael D. was spoiling for a row, particularly during the years of the bailout, the most acute years. You know, you think back between 2011 and 2014, he made a couple of fairly tasty speeches. I was at one myself in the European yeah, Parliament in Strasbourg, we, he kind of railed against the culture of austerity ratings agency and he did go well over the line. But there's a view in government that he might want this route to make himself a saviour. We're not going to give it to him. So they kind of do, as Harry says, adopt the attitude. That's Michael D. Just let him off. Right. We have another story on the front page of today's newspaper. Sarah Barden reports that there's going to be a, um, a referendum on water. Um, there was always, I think, yeah, that, that that's going to happen. Um, there was a commitment in the... I think the all-party report on water charges that mm. there would be one. Mm. So I imagine that a, a commitment to have a referendum would be giving effect to that. When it would happen is anybody's guess. There is one referendum that has to be dealt with quite promptly, and that's the one on the Eighth Amendment. I would imagine that would be the first on the government's agenda and on the opposition's agenda as well. What effect get would a referendum on water be, and what would its wording it, entail? It, it would be, to me, it would be a kind of um, a political tautology. I don't think it's quite necessary. None of our other utilities... Um, are protected by the Constitution. I have pretty, pretty st- strong views on water charges, so maybe my there was a views are kind of slightly prejudiced in that regard. But it was. It was recommended, as Fiuk said, by the committee. It was also recommended by the expert group. And is this uh, is this, is this an element on the, on the, on the on a Irish citizen's right to water or that uh, water services well, should always be held I, or controlled by the state? I think it, it, it is. I think it's to give public reassurance that water and that resource will remain in public ownership and won't be hived off to private uh, ownership. To me, mm. It seems to be a rather extreme way of manifesting and proving that. I think that could just as easily be done uh, in terms of legislation. Now, in the autumn, we're also going to see the legislation uh, being uh, approved uh, to impose the new regime where where water will be free, Mm. uh, but that those who waste water, who who use 70% more than average use, which is about, uh, I think, 70,000 to to 80,000 households uh, will pay more. And that'll be very interesting to see how that's drafted because, it, to me, it seems that's going to be very difficult for them to find out who they are. Why? Because they won't be able to use water meters. They will have to use... Um, um, uh, divining rods. <laughs> probably divining rods, yeah. Um, why, sorry, why won't they be able to use water meters? Be, well, now, there is provision 
that, that they can use water meters in the future, but there's no uh, specific provision in relation to that. So what they'll be using initially are district meters, but district meters are kind of unwieldy and they cater for between 1,000 and 2,000 connections or homes. So to find the one or two miscreants within those one or 2,000 are going to be very difficult. Now, it can be done in the middle of the night, but you know most people aren't hosing what, their gardens or washing their cars what, in the middle what, of the night. What can be done in the middle of the night? Like you'd be going around spying on people no, who they are having can very use, long they showers? Can use, uh. they, can, they can use, because it's quieter <laughs> in the middle of the night, they can use technology to detect sound where, where water is leaking or water is being used excessively. Well, there might be one thing where there's a there's a 24-hour-a-day leak. Mm. Is it, but are people likely to be, if they're using water excessively, are they likely to be doing that at 2 o'clock in the morning? No, absolutely. Unless no. they have a leak. And I think, this I think, does I, sound like an absurdity. It, to me, it does. But um, maybe, maybe the government will prove otherwise when it comes up with the It's interesting here about the whole water charge thing. As Harry says, the Fine Gael will have their manifesto ready by November. Their party policy at the moment is to charge for water. I can't wait to see if the manifesto says they will introduce water charges if in a majority government after the next election. I doubt it somehow. Mm. Now, the reason we started by mentioning the, uh, the Irish Times Digest, and the reason, of course, it's back is because the, the House is back in session um, today. Do you expect anything else to, to pop up of interest over the, over, the, over the first week back? Well, the big issue, and will be the dominant issue, for the duration of this government and Brexit obviously is the big foreign affairs issue housing is the big issue mm. and will be the next issue the issue of the next election if you look I think Harry may have referred to this in a couple of pieces in recent days if you look at the uh, private members motions that are down the majority of them are on the subject of housing it is going to be the issue that the opposition will seek to tackle the government on because it's the issue of their greatest weakness the health service is a problem and it always will be a problem it's been a problem under successive governments it's Fine Gael have been in office since 2011 and what it didn't cause the circumstances which led to a housing crisis, they didn't react fast enough to prevent it. And I think that is their major weak spot. And I think that will be the political, dominant political theme of the next year. And how vulnerable are they to the criticism on this issue, Harry, that, that, that I've seen an awful lot over the last couple of weeks, which is that Fine Gael are ideologically um, unsuited to doing what needs to be done, which is uh, a major programme of, of building of social housing. I think there's there's a validity in in the criticism they have looked towards PPPs and have are looking towards the private sector and the affordable uh, housecare. But they, they, the core is, you know, when you take out vacant houses and take out all the other uh, bells and whistles that they've thrown into it, uh, you find that, um, you know, they, what's needed to be done is that they need to build a lot of social housing. Mm. And the most effective way of building social housing in the past was to get the local authority to do it. Uh, to acquire the land, to get planning for it and build the houses. Now, it's not a process that can happen overnight. It takes a couple of years, uh, but it just isn't happening, you know. And uh, Fine Gael are insisting that they're trying to make it happen. They're trying to uh, compel the local authorities to get it done. But there is some point where reports have to stop, where all the talking has to stop, where all the consultation has to stop, uh, where all the the trawling has to to stop, where all the plans have to stop, and people have to get down and build. And it just isn't happening at a quick enough rate, either in the private sector or in the public sector, either for ordinary housing, affordable housing or social housing. And uh, Owen uh, Murphy um, has had a baptism of fire as Minister for Housing. And already he kind of recognises uh, that his uh, ministry over the next 18 months is going to be a huge struggle for him. Interesting, I was talking to somebody in Fine Gael, um a week or two ago about a report that had gone to a cabinet subcommittee on the cost of building apartments and the fact that the Department of Housing seemed to buy the developer's argument that it wasn't beneficial to them to build apartment blocks around Dublin and other urban centres because it cost them too much money because of stuff like car parking spaces but that factored in a profit margin of 10-12% to 12%. like I said to somebody in Fine Gael, you know what's, 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 the, what's the deal with this that seems to me to be a healthy enough profit margin well you know you can make 12% profit but then 
you would that be dragged would be dragged back by certain costs and they said we're not communists after all we do want these people to make money mm. so I think the public are probably going to have to get used to the fact that government policy is going to be designed to spur developers and I know there was controversy recently over the VAT rate cut but you're going to see other sweeteners for developers to get them moving as well I'd imagine Do you think months. I mean whatever about the impacts that that has and th- this is such a big crisis that it's going to take a long time really to see those impacts having an effect how do you think it will play politically in the kind of time scale that, that you've been talking about the 18 I, months or so to I, the next I, election I, 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 Nobody expects this to be solved overnight and if you even talk to Fianna Fáil politicians, they say, like, look, nobody expects this to be done in the short term. But what they do expect is to see concrete initiatives taken. Um, as Harry says, less reports, you know, a couple of announcements. So, for example, whatever they turn NAMA into, they'll probably rename it a National Building Agency or some description. They'll have a big social housing programme announced, I would imagine, in the capital plan later this year. So there'll have to be a couple of concrete steps taken. And by the time of the next election, the public would have to feel these are taking effect. So there would have to be, you know, tangible things like a couple of building sites around the place. Mm-hmm. You know, apartment blocks being built around Dublin city centre. Like if you look just the road from here in Dorset Street, there is an apartment block for student accommodation that has flown up recently because the standards are less. They don't have to have car parking space, don't have the dual aspect. So if the government changes apartment building standards, which they look like they are going to do, and there are developments being progressed within Dublin city, you know, people may say, OK, we are near to a solution on this. Right. We shall leave it there. Harry and Fiek, thanks very much for coming in today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Remember, you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcast or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're already a subscriber, we are always very grateful if you take a moment to share or to recommend the podcast. That's it for this edition. And thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember also that you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com where you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 